Welcome to our QDI webinar. My name is Anna David, and I'm a senior scientist within the Kaijun Digital Insights scientific and technical support team. Today, our speaker is Dr. Lynn Mullen, an expert from the same team. Lynn completed her PhD at Harvard University and continued to teach at Harvard after receiving her doctorate. Before her time at Harvard, she spent several years as a research scientist at the Senior Sinai Prostate Cancer Center and at Quest Diagnostics. Additionally, Lynn has had many years of experience conducting research to identify the genetic basis of human ophthalmic genetic disorders, working at the UCLA Department of Ophthalmology and the University of Florida Department of Ophthalmology. Lynn has received numerous awards and fellowships from the National Science Foundation, the American Society of Mammalogists, and other esteemed institutions. Today, she will be walking us through how to create, set up, and interpret a phosphorylation analysis in IPA. All right, thank you very much, Anna, and hello, everyone. I'm really excited to introduce you to the phosphorylation analyses and help you learn how you can gain insights into your protein phosphorylation results. This is just a reminder that IPA is meant for research use only. All right, so for many experiments, and in particular high throughput experiments, it can be very difficult to interpret the data in a broader biological context and figure out how, how all of these pieces work together. So after you perform your experiment, you quantify your proteins, and then you process your data to identify significant proteins, the next step where you're trying to identify the underlying biology in other words, you're trying to find the cause and the effect can seem pretty daunting. So you might want to know, well, how can I interpret the biological meaning of my data in a way that's quick and easy? So you might be interested in knowing which molecules are responsible for the phosphorylation changes that you see in your proteins. You might want to know what effect this has on the phenotypes that you're interested in studying. And what well-known, in other words, canonical pathways are involved. You also might want to know whether the results that you see are expected based on literature or database sources, and whether you can actually get some new hypotheses from your results. And these are all the questions that can be answered and addressed in IPA. And as many of you know, and many of you have experienced, it can be really time consuming and challenging to read and interpret all of the information that you need and um, look at all the publications that are needed for your research. So this is why we've developed the best in class knowledge base. And this has been developed over the past 20 years and it currently contains about 12.6 million findings. And the number of findings that we have grow every single week. We also have um, PhD scientists and MDs who carefully look over the literature and manually curate this information. And we also have quarterly updates to our databases that we access such as clinicaltrials.gov or Mirbase or Cosmic among many others. So a finding is a piece of evidence that we have that supports a relationship between different entities. And it allows us to make predictions about their activity. And we've structured this computationally into something we call the ingenuity ontology. And that has a very specific set of vocabulary. As you can see in this little example here, these are just some of the terms that our curators would look at and define when they're looking at different papers. Um, so for example, we have here um, a relationship between EGF and EGFR. And we're using the same vocabulary for EGFR and the compound cetuximab. So the structure of how these findings um, are um, put together is what really helps power the algorithm for the analyses and also how they can be interpreted in IPA. And one of the really cool things that you can do in IPA is you don't have to just look, sit there and read the different vocabulary. You can actually just view this information visually. So you can very quickly look at that, and we use uh, diagrams and color coding for you to very quickly get an idea of what's happening with your research. So this combination of the algorithm in our software 
and the findings is what helps you to quickly analyze and interpret all of your data. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through the entire process, starting with formatting your data set all the way to interpreting results. So the first thing we're going to do is I'm going to discuss how you can format your data set and upload it into IPA. And then I'm going to show you how you can set up and run a phosphorylation analysis. After this, I'm going to walk you through some questions that we have from the results of that analysis. And I just want to make a note that the questions that we're going to address today are not the only questions that you can ask. What I'm going to show you is just some of the many hypotheses that you can test and interpret in IPA. It's really going to depend on your research project. But here's what we're going to talk about. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at an analysis and try to find out what are the overall themes that we see in the results. What's the most significant things that we see in the analysis overall? And then we're going to look at which canonical pathways are enriched in the experiment. We're going to discover how you're going to find kinases that are acting as upstream regulators to the proteins in the data set. And next, I'm going to show you how you can find which proteins are being targeted by those upstream regulators and how the phosphorylation patterns change across um, the experimental groups. Now, our example today is going to be from a time point experiment, and I'm going to show you how you can compare the results from all those time points side by side. And while we will be focusing on phosphoproteomics data for this webinar, um, we'll also have the ability to compare that information to other omics technologies. So I'm going to show you how we can take our phosphoproteomics data and compare that to a related transcriptomics data set. So the data sets that we're going to use today, the phosphoproteomics data set, is from a study where the authors were interested in seeing how phosphorylation plays a role in insulin-regulated processes. So what they did is they took mouse 3TC3L1 fibroblasts and differentiated them into adipocytes. So adipocytes are the cells that are spe specialized in the synthesis and the storage of fat, and they're very important in helping to maintain energy balance. One of the major factors that controls the breakdown of fat is insulin. And this is a peptide hormone. It plays a major role in controlling metabolic homeostasis, cellular proliferation, and really the overall survival of an organism. So for this experiment, they starved those cells, then exposed them to insulin, and took different time point measurements ranging from 15 seconds to an hour. And then after this, they quantified um, using mass spectrometry to generate the phosphorylation data. And at the end of the webinar, we're going to compare the results from this um, phosphoproteomics data set to the transcriptomics data set. As I mentioned earlier, the authors of this paper took the same cell type, also differentiated them into adipocytes, also starved them, and treated them with insulin, but took the time point 24 hours after stimulation. Okay, so now let's go into how you can format your phosphoproteomics data set. So, first of all, your data set should be either in a text haptolimited or an Excel file. And the very first column on the leftmost side should be the protein identifiers. IPA does not like it if you have if you do not have an identifier in that leftmost column. So in this example that I'm showing you here, we have the international protein index identifiers for the proteins in that leftmost column, but you can have additional identifiers like I have here for the different gene names or really protein names, and you can have up to five different um, identifier types. Some people like to have more identifiers because it helps maximize the number of proteins that IPA can recognize, but it is an optional step. Another option, which is optional, is to also have a phosphocyte um, column. So here you can have up to 256 characters um, per phosphocyte, and you can have some special characters. You can't use every single special character under the sun, and we do have a list of what you can use in our help documentation. Okay, and it's important to note too that you only need to have one column for the phosphocytes. You don't need to have one column for every single experimental group. Okay, 
So the next thing we have are the data measurements. So in this data set, the authors took the medians for the, all the samples into groups and then took a log ratio. And this is what I'm showing you right here. Now there are eight different time points in this experiment, ranging from 15 seconds to 60 seconds or an hour. So in each one of those time points is referred to as an observation. So an observation in IPA is where you take one group and compare it to another group, like you're looking at an experimental group versus a control. So here we have eight different observations, but you can have up to 20 observations in the same data set file. So while we only have log ratio values here in this particular data set, you can add other things. So for example, if you want to also have p-values in this data set, you can add them here. And note, you can include other information in the data set. So I have this um, information here or the sequence window. This is all things that IPA isn't going to use, but you can leave it in the data set if you wish. And um, just if you want to come back to that and you really want to have it. What I want to draw your attention to here is whoops, um, this red box that's down here. So you might notice this is actually all the same protein, ABCC4 protein. And what the reason that we've put them into different rows is because each one of those has a different phosphocyte. So what will happen is IPA is only going to pick one of these phosphocytes to represent the protein. But I'm going to show you how you can make modifications to that. And the information isn't going to be lost. And I'll show you later in the webinar how you can find this information again. Okay, so the last thing I wanna say about the formatting is you wanna make certain that you do everything correctly at this step. You won't be able to make any changes to the data after you've uploaded it into IPA. So you just wanna be really careful about how you um, approach this before you go into the upload step. Okay, so now what I'd like to do is show you how to upload your data into IPA. So we're gonna go ahead and go live into the program. So I just wanna give you a really quick overview of um, this screen. I'm not gonna go into it in too much detail because there's other webinars and help documents that, that go into um, it a little bit more. But just up here in the upper left, you can see there's options for you to start analyses. We have a lot of help documentation and video tutorials that you can look at. And in the center of the screen, you can see that we have this quick start menu and there's a shortcuts option. So if you want to say upload your data set, then you can just click here um, or core analysis, et cetera. And of particular note, you might notice we have this analyzing phosphoproteomics data. So this is an article that you can read and you can um, look at different videos um, to help you out. Okay. And then over here we have the project manager and this, as you can see, this is where all your data set files and your analyses are, star are stored. And then up here in the middle, we have a search engine. So you can, let's say you want to do a search for a particular protein or chemical or pathway, you can do that here. So there's a couple of ways that you can go ahead and you can start your analysis or sorry, start to upload. And one is you can go to create new and go to upload or you can go to file, new, and then upload your data there. One thing that I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna click on the core analysis. So the core analysis means it's the phosphoproteomics analysis. And you can see this window that I now have a little replica of my project manager. So if I wanted to start a core analysis and I'd already uploaded the data set, I could pick that here. But we're gonna start from scratch and we're gonna click on upload data set. And all you have to do is just navigate to the folder where you have your data and click on it and then hit open. And now we see a new window that appears here. And I'll walk you through this starting from the top of this window. So up here we have the select file format and there's this there's three options here. There's a uh, two legacy um, formatting things. Most people don't even need that unless you've been using IPA like 15 years ago. Um, but so we just tell people just leave it at flexible format. The contains column header section. So IPA is going to scan your data set. If it sees a column header, it will indicate here that you have one. And then select identifier type. This gives you instructions for how to select the identifier types, which we'll talk about in just a minute.
And then the array platform section. So if you have an array, then you can go down here and you can find your array. If you don't have an array and, or you have an array that's not on, you know, an option here, you can pick not specified applicable. And we also have a user data set option, which I'm going to go into some detail later because we are going to use this option. But I want to leave it at non-specified applicable to show you how to find that. Now, anytime that you make a change here, that's going to get carried over into the create um, phosphorylation analysis step. But let's just leave it at the default. Okay, and then down here we have the raw data view. So down here our, our data is present and it shows as gray. And when we start to make changes, for example, I'm going to click on the ID column, um, it'll become active. And you can see in this new drop-down window, we have a whole bunch of different options for you to use. So if you have Uniprot identifiers, if you have something from Bob Chem, um, here's our IPI identifiers, those are all here. IPA was able to tell what I had from the start because I had IPA, IPI in the header. But if you don't have a header or if you just have something like IDs, what it'll do is it's gonna scan the first 100 rows and it's gonna make its best guess as to what what it is okay and then i mentioned um, earlier that <clears throat> you can have a phosphocyte column and you only need to have one so what you need to do is you have to assign it to an observation it doesn't matter which one you do um, it just has to be assigned to one of them so you can see here that it automatically assigned it to phosphocyte because it noticed in my header that i had mentioned phosphocyte one thing that you want to be careful of is that um, I really like to change the names of the observations because it's really easy later on to go, oh, wait, I don't know what observation one. What was that? What was that? What did I do? So what you can do is go to edit observation names. And in this button, you can go ahead and then just, you know, choose whatever you would like that to be. Um, one of the other things that'll happen is, let's say that you just have something that says log ratio in the header, or you don't have a header. IPA is going to scan, again, the first 100 rows and try to make a guess. But what it will also do is it tends to just assign everything to the EXPR. And you want to make certain that you actually have it choose the phospho option because that's going to make a big difference later on when it's trying to figure out which type of core analysis that you're running. All right. So um, one of the things, though, that you can do is if you have just an identifier column, just one, and only the data that you're going to analyze, you can use this infer observations button. And when you click on that, boom, it maps everything um, and it actually, what it did was it looked at the header and it named my observation one as what was in my header. But then I can always change it with observation names if I wish. And then you might notice that we have a number here for the raw data. This is the 23,589. That's the number of rows we have in our data set. But not every single row is mappable. In other words, identifiable in IPA. So when you click on the data set summary, you'll see there was about 471 identifiers that were not recognized by IPA. And then there's a lot of reasons for why that can happen that we go over in our help documentation. Um, and so you can go ahead and take a look at that, but there could be things like you have a protein ID and it's ambiguous and it, IPA doesn't know which one is which, or it's an old identifier that's no longer in use. Okay. So um, after that, what we can do is go and click on save. And then you get this message that some people get concerned about because they think it's an error message. But what it's trying to do is just tell you, hey, you know, you have this option to add metadata. Do you want to do that? So I'm going to cancel that and just show you where you can put that. So we have a metadata column here. So let's say that later on you want to do a search for um, a certain mouse strain or a certain cell line, you can add that information in here. And so later on, you can go and say the data sets and analyses appear at the top and perform a search for your particular cell line and it will appear here. But we're not going to do that today. And again, this is an optional step. And what we'll do now is we'll hit save and we'll click OK. We're OK with not putting in metadata.
And then you have the option to determine where you want to save it. So I already created a folder, um, but you can create a new one, a new project. And you can also pick, you know, a name. I've already done that. So I'm just going to go ahead and click save again. And no, it doesn't like that. So we'll just put in, I don't know, make it a little bit different. So at this point, it's going to upload the data set file into IPA, and that's going to get stored into that data sets folder that I showed you earlier. And now we have a new window that appears. And this is the beginning of creating your core analysis. So here, um, if you recall, I mentioned that we want to put in phospho log ratio, not EXPR. And this is the reason why. Here it will say, oh, you had phospho log ratios. Therefore, I know you're doing a phosphorylation analysis. The second option here is important because it's based on the Z-score. And I'm going to talk in a little uh, bit about what a Z-score is, but briefly, it's a statistic that IPA uses to determine um, the prediction of activity for your upstream regulators, your pathways, your diseases, your functions, and more. And it requires that you have some sort of measurement like a log ratio or a fold change value. So I mentioned earlier, you could have p-values or you could have other statistics. Um, you don't want to put those here because you won't get a z-score calculated and you'll miss out on a lot of important information. Okay, so now we'll click on next. And what we're going to see is a really big window that's going to pop up. It's going to be called the Create Phosphorylation Analysis Page. And here what we're going to do is we're going to um, I'm going to show you how you can set different filters. I'm going to show you how you can go ahead and assign um, different cutoffs. And then we'll start running the analysis. So over here on the left side, you can see that we have a number of different filter options. So for example, if I'm just not interested in human or rat information, I can deselect that. And so any findings that have um, proteins that are expressed in those particular tissues will not be included in the results. And you can do that for different cell lines. There's a whole bunch of different options here. I won't go into the details about that, but we have a lot of information in our help documentation about it. I do want to draw your attention to the reference set. Um, so I mentioned this earlier, you might recognize these are the different arrays that we discussed when we were uploading the data set and that user data set option. So again, if you had set that back in the upload data set option, this would automatically have been carried over into this section. Now, the reason I didn't put this in is because I wanted to draw your attention to these three other options. By default, you're going to see ingenuity knowledge base options appear. And the knowledge base options contain all of the proteins or genes in the genome slash proteome. But most people haven't been able to measure every single protein, right? So not all proteins are going to be phosphorylated in a particular tissue. Not all proteins could be phosphorylated. Um, you also have the issue where platforms like mass spec tend to not do like a fantastic job of identifying every single possible protein. So for this reason, we do recommend that if you have a phosphoproteomics data set, that you use the user data set option. So what's going to happen here is that we're going to set some cutoffs to identify the most significant molecules, and we're going to test those against everything you were able to measurably detect. You don't want to leave it here because you're going to bias your results. You basically would be telling IPA, I measured every protein that's ever known to exist when actually you weren't able to um, specifically. Um, so, yeah, so the next step we want to talk about is in this advanced button. And I had mentioned earlier that IPA is only going to choose one phosphocyte per protein. And here, um, by default, what it's going to do is it's going to take the phosphocyte that has the greatest phosphorylation value, absolute value. And some people might be concerned about that. They might say, wait, wait a minute. I had some phosphocytes that were downregulated and I had some, or sorry, that showed a decrease and some that showed an increase. 
I don't want that to happen. So instead, what you can do is you could take the average or you could take the medium. You could even take the minimum if you wish. For today, I'm going to pick the average. Okay. So now here we're going to set the cutoffs. This is something you absolutely have to do if you're using the user data set. And you, we do recommend that you do set some cutoffs. The, the thing is you don't want to just leave, you know, let's say that you have 8,000 or 10,000 different proteins. Um, basically, when you get to that step, you're basically telling IPA, hey, what does the protein, you know, proteome do? What, what's going on in, in the entire universe of an organism when actually you're trying to answer a very specific research question? So what you can do is set the cutoffs here. Um, so you can do something like here, you could put 1.6 or positive 1.6, and that corresponds to a full change of three. You could also, you know, change the values to be different values. But one thing that I'd like to um, emphasize is that you don't want to have one analysis where you have only uh, proteins that show a decrease in phosphorylation and a separate one that shows only an increase. You really want to put them all together because there are pathways and regulators and stuff that need access to both the increase and decreases in phosphorylation. Okay, so right now we have about 4,300 analysis ready molecules. And so when we hit recalculate, we're going to see that number drop because we're getting rid of anything that doesn't meet our cutoffs. So now we have about 2,000 analysis ready molecules. So the analysis ready molecules are the ones that have passed whatever cutoffs that you've applied here. And a lot of people will say, well, how many should I have? We make a recommendation of anywhere from 100 to 3,000. It really is going to depend upon your experiment. Sometimes you might not be able to get exactly 100. Maybe you'll get 80. Um, you have to do what you can do. Um, but you can play around with the different cutoffs and see if you can get into that little sweet spot of 100 to 3,000. And then one thing I like to do before I get started and before I, you know, finish setting those cutoffs is if I have a multi-observation data set like I do here, I like to look at this drop-down menu and just the numbers here uh, correspond to the analysis-ready molecules. And I just want to make certain that they've all passed that cutoff and they have here. And then you can actually see um, this table down here at the bottom. You might recognize it um, from earlier where we had the unmapped IDs, the mapped IDs, and now we have that new column, the analysis-ready molecules. So this gives you all the information about that. I mentioned again, um, I think this is the third time I've mentioned, that we have duplicate resolution, so only one um, identifier is picked. When you see that, it'll show as a D for duplicate, and there'll be a little asterisk next to the name. Okay, and that's all you have to do. So now you hit run analysis and you can go ahead and um, you can find whatever project you want to put them in. You can change the name. You can, you know, do whatever you like right here. I'm just going to leave it because um, as it is, one of the nice things that it does is it will actually put a little timestamp there. Okay. So I'm going to hit okay. And now it's going to submit the analysis. And when it's done, it's going to show up in that little project manager that I showed you earlier. If you're logged into IPA, then it's going to have a little orangey yellow bar that'll appear at the bottom of your screen. But you can walk away. You don't need to be there waiting for the analysis to be completed. And you can see over here that here is my project manager. And let's make this a little bigger. Um, you can see that there are these little clock icons. And that means it's in the queue. It's waiting. And when you click on it, it'll tell, it'll look at the queue and it'll say, hey, you're number three in the queue. And it'll take you about this amount of time. If you look over here, we have one that's actually running. It has a little bit of green in it. Um, and when you click on that, it will tell you how long it's going to take for each one of these little tabs here. So it says about 15, 20 minutes. It may actually take a lot less than that. 
And um, usually the molecules tab and the pathways tabs are the first things that open up. And when it's done, it'll show up as bold, like you can see down here. And I have already actually opened, um, run this before. So I'm going to go ahead and open one up. Um, but before I do that, I want to go back to my slides. So earlier I showed you how to upload your data set. And now, and then I showed you how to set up the analysis. And by the way, um, Anna put a PDF of the slides in here, just as a reminder, if you want to follow along there. Um, and now what we're going to do is we're going to look at the overall themes of the results. The first thing I want to do, though, is I want to talk to you about the statistics, because it's really important to understand there, there's only three that are really major statistics to worry about here. Um, the first one is the p-value. So the p-value of overlap is going to be looking at the association of the molecules in your data set that belong to an entity. And what I mean by an entity is like a pathway or an upstream regulator um, or a function and see if that proportion is significantly greater than we would expect if we had instead submitted a random bunch of molecules into a data set. So just like most p-values in science, the cutoff that we use is to be less than 0.05. Now, when you're looking at your data, and let's say that your hypothesis is, I'm interested in knowing if um, breast cancer is significant in my data set. That's one hypothesis that you're testing. Doing the p-value this way is great. But when you're testing multiple hypotheses, like I want to know all the pathways that are interesting in my data set, then you're testing multiple hypotheses. And the more hypotheses you test, the greater your chances for false positives. So we have a way in IPA where you can actually access that information. We allow you to adjust for testing multiple hypotheses using the sort of standard benjamin Hochberg method. And again, that same threshold of 0.05 is used here. I mentioned earlier Z-scores, and Z-scores are pretty important because they give you information about predictions of activity that we can make, and that's based on the information we have in your data set. So in this little um, network here, I have proteins that are showing an increase in phosphorylation in red with a plus sign, and those that show um, green with a minus sign are those that have a decrease in phosphorylation. And from that information, we look at that and compare it to the literature and see how consistent that is. And then we make a prediction that this upstream regulator is activated or inhibited. So in this situation, this upstream regulator is orange. And in IPA, if you have Let's see. Okay. Uh, a z-score that's greater than or equal to 2 means that we're making a statistically significant prediction of activation. And if it's less than or equal to minus 2, it means that we're making a prediction of inhibition. Okay. All right. So with that, let's go into the results. The um, first thing I want to pop show you, and I'm going to make this a little bit bigger, is the summary tab. So the summary um, is just showing you the top five results of many of the different tabs that we see up here. So for example, the top five canonical pathways, the top five upstream regulators, and more. And a lot of people just stop here and they don't go and dig any deeper into this information. And I really encourage you to not just stop at the top five, but to look at it more carefully. Um, a really great way to kind of get another summary is to look at the graphical summary. So what this does is it's taking a look at all of the most significant entities um, via the p-value and via the z-score, and it's connecting them. So if there's proteins that are in common among them, then it will make these little connections. And you can move these around. You can say, well, I really think that font size is too big, so I'm going to change that. Um, 
And so, and then you can also go to revise summary if you're like, oh, wow, there's way too many nodes here. I already put it at fewer nodes originally um, here. And then you might notice that there are these little dotted lines right here. And you can see the legend that um, this is an inferred relationship. So for graphical summary, we use not just the literature and database sources, but we're actually using machine learning. Okay. Um, I want to go back to my slides again, because this, honestly, they can look a little messy. And I want to show you a slightly pretty, prettier version of this where I've moved things around. And I want to show you these overall themes that we've identified. So um, I want to highlight the little thing, um, the nodes that have little orange circles around them. You can see that here are some of the upstream regulators and different pathways that are predicted to be activated. Again, they have that orange color. And this is probably not really surprising because we see things like insulin and insulin receptor predicted to be activated. And we have um, mTOR signaling and insulin receptor signaling. These are all um, different pathways that are involved in the control of insulin. And then some other things that might be of interest here, you can see in the blue circles, we have a decrease in insulin resistance and a decrease um, in glucose tolerance. So these are not, shouldn't be that surprising. And it's a nice little proof of concept as to what's going on. Okay. Um, now what I want to talk about next is what canonical, sorry, what canonical pathways are significantly enriched in the data set. So for that, let's go back into IPA and we'll go into the pathways tab. So when you open this up uh, first, you're going to see this bar chart and on the bottom, the x-axis, you can see the names of all the pathways. On the y-axis, you can see the negative log of the p-value. And the reason we take the negative log is it's because it's very hard to graph a 0.05, a 0.01, et cetera. So it's a lot easier if you take the negative log and then you can get a value. So here, the taller the bar, the more significant the pathway is via the p-value. We use that same color coding of orange indicating activation, blue indicating inhibition. We also have gray. So gray means that there are pathways that we currently don't have enough information about at this time to make a confident activity prediction. As time goes on, we get more data and our scientists look at and revisit the pathways, they may change that. And in fact, often with our releases, we'll find a couple of pathways that we can um, update. And if you have a z-score of zero, it will show with the white bar. And again, you know, z-score of zero is just going to mean that we can't make a confident prediction. And when you click on the bar, you'll see down here there's a little table, and that will show you um, all the information about the analysis-ready proteins that are within that pathway. Now, you don't need to keep it at this view if you say, well, that's really hard to read those names. I want to change that. So you could change it to a horizontal view. Some people like to do that, makes it easier to read. And one of the things that um, we've recently introduced is a bubble chart. So this, um, something this was done from customer request. When you um, look at this chart, the size of the bubbles is based on the number of molecules that are overlapping with that pathway. And we originally sort them by the type of pathway they're in. So for example, um, growth factor signaling, we've got a number of different pathways that are associated with that general category. But one thing you can do is go to the customize chart button and you can say, you know, I'd really like to change the p-value type. I want to take into the account that I'm measuring 760 or so hypotheses because that's how many pathways we have in IPA um, as of this moment. So you might want to do that and you might say, yeah, I really, I'm not interested in anything that has a p-value or a z-score of two of like 0.2. So I want anything that's just significant. Um, you may say, okay, I want to change this so the axes are different. So there's all kinds of different options that you can do here. And then when you're done, you can hit apply. So that can change um, the, the bubble chart. And... You know, so something that you can point out now is we can see that 
Um, we have a lot of very interesting results like insulin receptor. There's that mTOR signaling that I pointed out earlier in um, the graphical summary. So what you can do here is you can double click on a circle or if you're in the bar chart, you can double click on the bar chart and it will open up a new window. And in this window, you can see a diagram showing all the molecules that are within that pathway. And we've color coded them so that if it's red or pink, um, as shown here in the prediction legend, we know that, that those were analysis-ready molecules in your data set that showed an increase in phosphorylation. If they're green, they showed a decrease. If they're gray, it means they're in your data set, but they didn't pass your cutoffs that you set. And also you might notice we have the orange and the white, uh, blue nodes. So these are nodes that not are not in your data set, but what IPA is able to do by default, it uses this molecule activity predictor to make a prediction of what's going on within that pathway. And you can always go to the overlay tool and it's right here, this map, molecule activity predictor. Click there, you can see it's turned on by default. I can always turn that off. And then you'll see that all the ones that are not in your data set have now turned to be white. And you can also see a little bit more clearly now that I've turned map off that we have these little fuchsia um, outlines. These are the molecules that are in your data set. So this can be, is a really nice feature to have. Um, initially, you may say, well, yeah, it's really easy. I can see that. But when you're looking at a really huge pathway, it might be a lot harder to see where your molecules are located. So that's one of the reasons why we added that into here. Okay, we'll go back and we'll restart that prediction. And I will go ahead and close that and discard that pathway. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> close that. And so the next thing what I want to do is now that I've shown you um, the different interesting pathways, now what we're going to do is we're going to talk about um, which upstream kinases can we identify in this data set. So we'll go back into IPA and we will look at our core analysis. And here's our upstream analysis section. So here's a table. It contains all of the protein, or sorry, all the upstream regulators that have been identified from your data set within IPA. So each one of these gets its own row. And if it's in your data set, it will have its log ratio value here. Now you probably noticed right from the start, well, there's a lot of upstream regulators here that don't have a have any measurements. So what is going on? Well, you can go ahead and, and, you know, think about this when you have something like insulin, for example, insulin was added to the, to those cells, right? But it's not in your data set. It's wasn't in there, but what IPA does is it knows from the information, in your data that you actually added it. We were able to make a prediction that this was added to the system. So you don't necessarily need to have an upstream regulator in your data set for IPA to make a prediction that it's having an effect. And there can be other reasons why you might not see something. It could be because, well, there's this molecule here. It's not in my data set. Um, but why is it an upstream regulator? Well, it could be because there are other biological mechanisms that are responsible for what it's doing to create um, this phosphorylation patterns that you see here. And though those um, are also in this target molecules in the data set column. So what I'm gonna do now is we're gonna focus on what kinases are responsible from some of the changes that we see in the data set. So to do that, I'm gonna go to this molecule type tab and there's a little funnel icon here that I'm gonna click on. And you have a lot of different options to filter by. I'm going for just kinases, so I'm going to select from the list below, and then I'm going to go down to the kinase button and click on apply. And we're going to now filter it. We have about 56 now. And then what I'm going to do is I'm really only interested in upstream regulators that have um, a z score greater than or equal to 2. So I entered that in and hit apply. 
Okay. And then the other thing that I mentioned, I've mentioned it a number of times, is the BHP value. So correcting for multiple hypothesis testing. We have tens of thousands of upstream regulators to detect, and therefore we have tens of thousands of hypotheses we're going to test. So what we can do is go to the customize table button here, and then there's the BH corrected p-value option. So I'm going to select that and hit OK. And it adds it as a new column into the table. So right here, I'm going to use that standard um, less than 0.05 option. Oops. Did I do that? Let's listen to F5. What did I do wrong? Uh, I did something wrong here. <laughs> what happened? Oh, I know why I'm looking at the wrong thing. I was looking at the one minute one. Oops. Okay. My apologies for that. Okay. So we're going to go back and do this again. It's always fun when things go differently than you expect. Here we go. I'm going to do that. And then the z-score. Are equal to 2. Customize table. So you guys get to see this all over again. That's good. Okay. And then less than 0 0.05. Now, there we go. These are the three that I wanted to show you. So what you could do is you could just highlight one of them and display it as a network. Um, we can also highlight a bunch of them at the same time and click on display as network. And what it'll do is it'll open up this network and you can see right here in the center, we have all these different upstream regulators and they're surrounded by their molecules that they target. So you can see here that, um, we have a number of different targets. They have these little badges, these numbered badges. And so you can see when you click on them, like when I do the IRS2, you can see here are all the different um, phosphocytes that we had put into our data set. So again, that information was not lost. We have it right here. And you can also go ahead and say, well, um, this is a little hard to read. What you can do is go to path tracer button that's located here, and you can actually fade out anything that you're just not interested in. So for example, if I choose a fade distant nodes, when I go back and I choose this node, everything else that's not involved or connected to IRS2 is now faded out. And you might also notice that we have a solid lines right here. So solid means that there is a direct um, connection between the molecules, so IRS2 and um, insulin receptor, they have actually direct physical contact between them. So when you double click on that, you can actually see over here this relationship summary, and it tells you the finding that you can access. We have um, indirect connections. So for example, for TRIP12, tw we can see that um, there's a dotted line, so that means there's an indirect connection. So we know that there's a relationship between AKT1 and TRIP12, but we don't know the exact physical mechanism. So you might note as well that, okay, so there's been some orange lines. So AKT1 is orange, which means it's activated. TRIP12 is red, meaning there's an increase in phosphorylation. Um, I also see this one, GSKB3, but it's it's red, it's pink, meaning it's increase in phosphorylation, but there is a blue line. So what is happening here? And why does this have this little glow? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to my slides and I'm going to describe this in more detail. So um, one of the things that can happen is that... IPA is going to infer for some proteins that when you have an increase in phosphorylation, it can actually lead to a decrease in its activity. There's about 260 or so proteins that we know of that have this sort of effect. So you'll see that where you have, say, a solid, um, 
see a uh, pink or red indicating it's showing an increase in phosphorylation, but it has a blue halo. So that means that it's actually inhibited. And alternatively, you could have a protein that has green and it is showing a decrease in phosphorylation, but that makes it activated as shown here with like ELK1. Okay. And then one of the things I also wanted to draw your attention to is that we um, sometimes will have findings that are very specific for the phosphocyte. So for example, here we have a phosphocyte that where we have a serine um, at position nine. And what you can do when you wanna take a look at that finding is go here in the relationship summary, click on the view relationships, and it's gonna pop up this little um, window where you can see the findings and you can actually take a look at them, go into more detail. You can see, for example, in this one, it specifically mentions this um, phosphopeptide, and this was actually um, signaling pathways involved in insulin-stimulated glucose transport. Okay, and then when you wanna go ahead and look at the source of the findings, you can click on these different links right here, and it'll take you to the gene view page. Okay. All right, so let's go back to the slides again. And I showed you the upstream kinases implicated. And now what I wanna do is show you how their levels of phosphorylation changes across time. So to do that, let's go back here and we're gonna go to this network, which I've already opened. And what I've done to create this network um, is I've gone to the overlay tool and I've gone to something called analyses, data sets, and lists. And I've entered in all of the different phospho, um, sorry, time points by going to this add more button. And you can see again, we have our little project manager window. And by default, it's gonna show you all kinds of different graphs within this different network. You can turn those off and you know say, I don't wanna see all of that. Or you can say, okay, I want to see a couple of those. So for example, I can click here and I want to pick for the row sele selected um, AKT1. We can pick that. Um, maybe we can pick BCL2. And you can see that over time, some of these are increasing in phosphorylation. And you can click on those. You can make them bigger. You can move them around. And it just allows you to see, you know, each bar is representing a different observation. So you can look at these time points over um, time per protein. Okay. All right. So now that we've looked at the targets, we've looked at how their levels of phosphorylation change over time. I want to then draw your attention to um, the different, sorry, how we can look across all the different observations together. And so to do this, we're gonna do what's called a comparison analysis. And it's pretty easy to set this up. What you can do is go to new and it's called comparison analysis. And here you just go to your files your, and just add them in here and you can sort them. So for example, if I don't want position, you know, the one minute time point to be the first one. I can always move it down right here. And this is going to be the order that we're going to view it in. And then you can just click on viewing the comparison. And what we're going to see is a heat map. And the heat map is going to show us all the different entities that are laid out side by side. So we can see, we'll be able to see how similar or different all of these are. So the first one is the canonical pathways view. It shows again that orange for the activation Z-score and blue means inhibited. And you can go ahead and, you know, you can visualize it via the Z-score. You can do it by the p-value. You can do it by the BHP value. And here white means it's not significant and purple means it is. You can change the sorting if you want to do it by a trend. If you want to do a hierarchical clustering, you can do all of that. And one thing that I like to do too is when you have your mouse, you may think, oh, wow, this is really significant. It's orange. But then you look at it and you're like, wait a minute, that has a Z score of one 
and a p-value of what 0.3 so no this is not significant so you can go to this insignificance threshold and enter for the z-score here that we have a two for that cutoff and hit apply and then you'll get a little dot in the center and that will tell you which ones are not significant and you know, I went ahead and I looked at this earlier. So this is why I picked the one to minute time point, because this is where we actually start to see some of the most um, interesting results. You can kind of see that too of the upstream analysis when we um, add the insignificance threshold of two, and then we're starting to see some interesting things. So we, um, over time, such as insulin. Okay, so now what I'd like to do is I've shown you how you can look at the predictions um, over time within a comparison analysis. I mentioned earlier that we could um, look at, compare this with a transcriptomics data set. And so that's we're gonna, what we're gonna do next. And the way that we're gonna do this is, I actually have this open already. Well, no matter, we'll just redo it. Okay, so we're gonna go to comparison analysis. And this time we're going to go ahead and we're going to, no, 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 no. God, let's just cancel this out. There's a lot of stuff in there. There, cancel that. We're going to discard the changes. And here it is. It's in our comparison analysis folder. So what I did is I ran this ahead of time. There's the first one. And here's the one with the transcriptomics. So you can see right here that we have this mouse expression um, data set. And what you can do is you can see when we're looking at say the upstream analysis that we have some of the same things appearing um, side by side, such as insulin that's appearing right here. And I can show it a little bit better on my slides. Um, you can see right here, um, we, this is just a little bit of information showing you how we set the cutoffs to determine which of the transcripts were most interesting or analysis ready. And you can see here, I looked at the 60 minute time point in this section, and that's just because um, there's nothing, you know, we've been using the one minute time point for most of this, but 60 minutes is a little bit closer than 24 hours. So we can go ahead and we can say, well, what are all the molecules that are in common between these for insulin? And the way you can do that is you can take all the information and make a list out of it. And that's what I've, I've done already. I've created these lists. And we can use something called the compare tool. And what this does is it creates a Venn diagram. So over here, again, I have my project manager. Um, I put in the 60 minute time point, and then I can add the 24 hour time point and then calculate the intersections. So here we can see that um, we have eight different molecules that are in common between the two different um, data sets. And when I click on that, then you can see that there's actually, um, these. Are, this is the identity. So these are molecules that you potentially can go back into the lab and do more investigation with. Okay, and so with that, I'd like to go back to um, review what we've talked about today. So uh, we've talked about how to format and upload your data set, how you can create and run a phosphorylation analysis, and we also walked through how you could look at the overall trends, how you could look at canonical pathways and identify interesting upstream regulators. We could show, you could see how we can look at the targets and see how the level of the phosphorylation change over time. And we can also lay all those analyses side by side to look at the overall picture of what's happening across this time point. And finally, we were able to take a phosphoproteomics data set and also lay that side by side with the transcriptomics data set. I want to bring your attention to some of our upcoming webinars. So next month, we're going to have a webinar that's going to talk about all the new features that are occurring within the fall release. So for example, we're going to be adding 500 new pathways um, in just a few weeks. It's just one example of the new things that we've had. There's a lot, a lot of new things. So for those of you who have been using IPA in the past year, you might not be aware of everything that we've added to it. So it should be a really 
good um, and interesting webinar. I want to draw your attention to our customer support, which Anna and I are members, so we can answer your um, technical questions you have. If you have scientific questions about IPA, we're happy to answer those. Um, if you have questions about licensing, you can contact us via um, RTS Bioinformatics um, at kaijin.com email or bioinformatics license. If you have questions about, say, I want a trial or um, something of that sort, you can call us, you can chat with us as well. And we always say within one business day, we are definitely going to give you a response. Okay. And with that, I'd like to uh, address any questions that we may have. Thank you very much for that, Lynn. Wonderful presentation. Um, Thank you. I have started addressing most of the questions in the Q&A, but I have left one question for you and for all of the attendees. Please uh, feel free to input any questions that you may still have in the Q&A section. So, Lynn, the question that we have for you is, in which cases does uncorrected p-value of overlap matter more compared to the adjusted p-value? Since we are always using hundreds, if not thousands, of molecules, shouldn't we always use the adjusted p-values? Ideally, you would always use the adjusted p-values if you're testing multiple hypotheses. Um, a lot of times we'll what will happen is people will come in and they'll say, I'm just not getting many results this way. And, and, and that happens. Sometimes. So what we do is we give you the p-value results first and let you make that decision. The other thing is that someone comes in and says, I'm really interested in insulin receptor signaling pathway. I'm not interested in anything else. So they're testing one hypothesis. So they could use that p-value and not have to worry about it. But overall, if you are testing multiple hypotheses, ideally, and you know this isn't always a reality, but ideally you're gonna want to adjust those p-values. You can also want to adjust your p-values for the proteins that you're uploading into your data set, although my experience with mass spec is that's really hard to do. It's really hard to get good um, adjusted p-values for your actual data, and sometimes it can be really hard to even get good p-values based on because of the limitations of the technology. All right, so... I hope that satisfies your question. Um, however, it is to ask that question. Um, is there anyone else who would like to ask any last minute questions before we end? And I just want to mention sometimes people will have questions later or they feel a little shy. Um, please, again, feel free to contact us. Whoops, I want to go back. Um, this is our information. You can see it in our slides as well. Um, so you might have a question 24 hours from now and you think, oh, Lynn, Anna, I need your help about something. Or maybe two weeks from now, you're running your phosphorylation analysis and you run into a problem and or you're worried about your data set. Did I set it up correctly? Um, hey, can you guys take a look at it? We'll be happy to take a look at that for you and help you out. And it also does not have to be questions around phosphorylation analyses per se. It can be about other features in IPA and also any of our other QEI products. Exactly. There's a lot of things I didn't focus on today. And, you know, we only have an hour and went over a couple minutes over that. I apologize for that. But there's so much in there. And the reason I focus so much on just a couple of these things is because it gets really you have so many results and it's really cool to have so many results, but you got to start somewhere and you want to stay focused at first. And so that's just kind of how one way to start to approach it. So you don't get lost and go down the rabbit hole and then um, get concerned. So usually what I do is there's so many different things. And I forgot to mention again, um, I wanted to draw your attention to our help, um, the help and support here. It takes you to a website that we have, and there's tons of different articles. I think there's over 250 different articles, um, and we keep adding more and more over time. Um, sometimes the best way to do something is do a search in the search engine. So I mentioned earlier, we have a whole 
FAQ about statistical calculations. And um, then you can read about that. I created some videos for you guys. If you have questions about multiple testing, um, we have a video about that as well. And I see there's another question. Oh, thank you. Okay. Okay. Thank you for all of the kind words, everyone. And we hope that you found the presentation helpful. Um, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. So let's stop the Q&A session for now. Any other, again, as Lynn mentioned, any other questions you may have, you can send to us. I'll stop the recording for now.